For the past several weeks during this season of Advent, we have been looking at the names by which the coming Messiah uh, would be known, Uh, the names by which Jesus is also known as we consider him uh, today. Uh, We kicked off a few weeks ago, beginning the first week of December, as we saw that he would be uh, would be called. uh, um, I'm going blank all of a sudden here. On a second, so what's that? Wonderful. wonderful that's right. We're starting with a. I'm going 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 backwards here. That he was going to be a wonderful counselor. Uh, that he would be mighty God. That he would be everlasting Father. This morning we come to the fourth of those names that we see that were recorded uh, and prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 9:6. Now, that's going to be our our primary base text this morning, but we'll also be looking at a couple other passages this morning. So those of you particularly who like to follow along or keep take notes might want to make a a mark somewhere in Luke chapter 2 and then also in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll signal you when we get to those points that we we need to look at those particular passages. Uh, But we begin our reading this morning in Isaiah. The primary text is verse 6, but where the context will begin our reading in Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Peace, Everlasting Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy God, we do come to you this hour. We come to offer praises in our lives, our hearts, our affections in worship. And now to continue in our worship, we offer to you our ears, our minds, as well as our hearts. That we may hear you speak through the word that you have recorded. And that you might grant us, by the power of your Spirit, understanding, not only of what you have declared, but of our own lives, our own emotions, our own situation. And that you would be at work, bringing to bear your word, your promise, and particularly your promise of peace, into the hearts of those that you have gathered here today. Lord, shape us, mold us, use us, 
but above all, draw us close. That we may know that you are near, that you love us, will never forsake us. For that is peace. We pray thus, all with hope because of your promise that is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So it's in him that we pray. Amen. I find it fascinating as I look at this text to think that Isaiah the prophet, 700 plus years before Jesus showed up on the scene, says that one of the names by which the promised Messiah would be known is Prince of Peace. And I find that rather ironic because it seems so often that the name of Jesus, rather than bringing peace, seems to bring controversy, conflict, and discord. Long ago, I heard people saying something that I didn't understand as a, as, as a relatively new Christian, but have found it to be true, that many people are comfortable with the idea of God. You can talk about God and your belief in God and your commitment to God and wanting to be uh, a, a godly person. And they're okay with that. But when you bring Jesus' name into the conversation, then people start getting a little bit uncomfortable and feeling somewhat unnerved. And while that's certainly not a universal reality, and it's common enough that an experience of many people, and perhaps some of the experiences that you've had as well, that, that you've noticed that. That rather than bringing peace, when you hear the name of Jesus, there are some people that get very uncomfortable. In my own experience, I've had opportunity through the years to participate in a number of public and, and civic functions. Often I'm asked to participate by praying. And in some of those occasions, the person who is organizing it or, or the hosting it will come up sometimes early on, sometimes closer to the day, and, and uh, make sure that I'm prepared and I'm willing and thank me for participating, and then ask that I not pray to Jesus or in Jesus' name. And when I realize in those circumstances that that's a non-negotiable for them, I have always politely declined participation. I would be free to participate. I don't think that Jesus would be upset with me for doing that, that he's just longing to hear his name over and over again. But I don't know who else to pray to. And so uh, if they don't want me to do that, then I, I really don't know what to say or what I'm doing there. I'm often there, but, uh, and so it's not an issue of anger, but it's just, it's, it's still is somewhat surprising to me. Why in the world would you call a Christian minister if you don't want him to talk about Jesus? But that's a whole other issue, which is probably why they don't ask me to be the keynote speaker on those things. But... Um, <laughs> But even Jesus himself seems to cause us to question his calling to be the Prince of Peace when he says some of the things that he said to his disciples. For instance, when he was preparing his disciples to go out on mission, as we see recorded in Matthew chapter 10, he says to them something that is somewhat startling, particularly when we consider the prophecy that we're considering this morning. Because what Jesus says to his disciples at that point is, don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? What does he mean that he didn't come to bring peace? After all, if he's the one who's supposed to be the prince of peace, and he's saying, 
of himself. Don't think that I came to bring peace. In fact, I came to bring sword. And he goes on and elaborates. I'm going to divide uh, fathers from their sons and mothers and their daughters and uh, people from their in-laws. And, uh, and just, uh, he, he's very thorough. This is not an off-the-cuff mistaken statement that he's made. This is a very intentional thing that he is declaring, that he has not come to bring peace. And it makes me wonder then if this is true, then in what sense can Jesus be rightly called the Prince of Peace? And why, if that is true, that he didn't come to bring peace, would we celebrate him during this Advent season and have all of the festivities? We have enough conflict in the world, enough division in the world. What we are longing for is peace. And here the one who was declared to be the coming Prince of Peace, it says, I've not come to bring peace. And if that's the case, then what hope do we have? Well, this morning, what I want us to consider is what all of Scripture teaches us, is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And it will be important that we recognize that the peace that Jesus brings is both a present reality and a future hope. And as a future hope and present reality, it is also a process that is at work even today in and through Jesus and the people that he has called to himself. And so what I want to do is first let's clear up some misconceptions that people tend to have, uh, both because of our own imaginations and because of confusing things that Jesus says and others have said about Jesus. And to understand what it means that Jesus is called Prince of Peace when he himself has said that he didn't come to bring peace, it's probably helpful to consider what Israel, who was the, they were the original audience that this prophecy uh, was given to, to, to understand we want to hear and consider what Israel thought this prophecy meant as they anticipated the promise of God to be fulfilled. And to understand what Israel thought uh, it meant, it's important that we consider uh, the phrase, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder. When we think of Israel, it's important that we recognize we have a totally different perspective. See, we're looking back 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus. We, therefore, are able to know that this prophecy is about Jesus, and we'll see clearly uh, that here in a moment. And we know that the government that is resting on his shoulder means that Jesus came to inaugurate a, a new kingdom, the, the kingdom of God, and that Jesus himself is the king who is going to reign over that kingdom. In fact, he is already reigning over that kingdom, even as we are here this morning. But 700 years before Jesus was born, when Israel first heard this prophecy, they would have had a very different idea about what these words meant. When they heard that there would be a baby that was going to be born and that he would grow up and be a mighty ruler, that he would become a, a great king, the natural understanding that they would have, considering the time uh, uh, that they lived in and the world in which they lived, 
is that this child would grow in stature and would be strong and would be wise and would be powerful and military, mil militarily sophisticated. And that as he rose up, he would inspire and gather a great army. He would prepare that army and that army would go out and would vanquish any of their opponents, anyone who would be a threat to them. He would defeat them. He would put them into submission. And that he would lead Israel into a period of prosperity and of peace because no one would dare come against them. In a very real sense, they were looking for somebody who would make Israel great again. But through politics, through military, through economics. I mean, what else would they possibly think uh, around them? That's the only thing they knew. Power ruled. There were neighbors, uh, neighboring countries that had a strong military and wise leaders, at least militarily speaking. They ruled. They seemed to be free. That was the way things were. And the nation of Israel was hurting. They had already split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And now their culture was coming apart at the seams, particularly in the northern kingdom. They were probably only a couple of years away from being taken into exile when Isaiah is prophesying. And when those kinds of cultural currents are taking place, people certainly feel the effects beforehand, whether they could foresee what was going to happen because the whole collapse of a country seems to be unfathomable. They certainly recognized that there were problems and they were living with a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. And then all around them, there were enemy nations were kind of stalking like a cat looking at a bird at a bird feeder, thinking when the time is right, I'm just going to pounce. I'm going to destroy and I'm going to devour. And only a few years later, that very thing happened. And so they were looking for somebody that would come and would protect them through the only kind of power that they really understood. But see, it's that very reason, because of their own preconceived ideas that they missed Jesus when he came. They were looking for one thing and Jesus was another. They were looking for somebody who would come and be a political and military power. And Jesus came humbly and poor, or lower middle class, to a carpenter's family in a nowhere village with nothing about him that would draw attention to think that he might be somebody great. But the reality is this is important because many people miss him today for really the very same reasons. We have our own ideas about who Jesus is supposed to be. And when we see Jesus as he really is, he doesn't match our expectations and therefore we become disappointed or we ignore him or we try to make him better in our own idea than what he, he really is. He doesn't match our ideals and so therefore we reject him. Now some of us might say, well, but we're trying to take our ideals from the Bible. 
Think about what Israel was doing. They were looking for somebody based on the prophecies that were given by the prophets of the Old Testament. They had biblical knowledge, biblical ideals, and yet they were trying to see through the lens of their own experience and of their own culture. They do the same thing that we do as well. And Jesus, when he came, was a disappointment to them. And in our culture, in our world today, including in the church at times, Jesus becomes a disappointment for many of us as well, whether we would say it or not. I was thinking about it this week, I was reminded of a, an insight that Jonah had. Some of you know the story of Jonah, most of you probably do, if you know the story. You know, Jonah took a, a few days where he didn't have a, a whole lot to do but think. Um, a vacation at sea, you might say. Um, and one of the insights, while he was floating about the ocean, or under it, was this. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit a grace that could be theirs. In Jonah's case, he was recognizing some of the issues that had caused his condition, his circumstance that he was in, really having no reason to believe that he was ever going to get out of it, but he had that profound insight. But it applies more than just his circumstances, because what he's talking about is those who cling to worthless idols. In other words, when they cling to something that is not God, even if it's God-ish. When they make something out of their own imagination and then elevate that as if that is going to give us the hope that we desire and to deliver us from our difficulties and to give us peace and to give us comfort and to give us identity, that thing is an idol in our lives. And the reality is for many people throughout history and today, Jesus himself, though he is a very real person who has come in flesh and he is God incarnate, we have ideas about Jesus that are not true of Jesus. And any idea that we have of Jesus that makes him something that he is not, well then we take the historical reality of Jesus and turn him into an idol. And if we cling to that idol, then we forfeit a grace that could be ours. Now, it's not a saving grace necessarily, but it is a grace that brings us peace. It's a grace that brings us comfort. It's the grace that gives us hope. It's the grace of the promise of God so that we understand what God is doing, how he is at work, and what it is he's promised so that we can see how our lives are in line with what God is doing and what he has promised. But when we are putting our lives in line with our own imagination of what God should be doing and who Jesus should be and what he should be doing, when God doesn't deliver according to our ideas, we get very frustrated. We get angry at God. And God seems very distant. And for many of us in this season, then God seems to be very distant. It may very well be because we have expectations of God that we've picked up somewhere on the streets rather than submitting to how God has revealed himself in the scripture, recognizing that even though we know, we still only know in parts. Rather than trying to be understanding more of God, we are still in our thoughts, in our hopes, and maybe even our prayers, trying to get God to conform to our way of doing things. And the result is frustration and sadness and feeling that we are distant from God. And in such times, it's important that we remember that the, the Prince of Peace has said that he didn't come to bring peace to the earth. In other words, when we are feeling anxiety, 
Perhaps when we are in the midst of conflict, whether it's at work or personal relationships, marriages with, with children, and we wonder why God is not delivering on the promise. He's the Prince of Peace. I've given myself to him. I'm committed to going to church, and yet I'm not experiencing this peace that, that I long for. We have the opportunity to ask ourselves whether or not we are trusting in a misconception of who God is in the person of Christ. And maybe specifically whether that misconception is that what he's promised us is perfect peace, continual peace, now and ever. There's a sense in which Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. And we'll talk about that, what he meant uh, in a moment. But we just need to clarify that it's very easy to miss who Jesus is. And when we miss who Jesus is, that robs us of the peace that we long for. But at the same time, it's essential that we understand that Jesus does bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. The kind of peace that Jesus brought is radically different than the kind of peace that the, the, than the people were looking for. And to understand the peace that the Prince of Peace brought into this world, it's helpful for us to go to the very moment when the prophecy of Isaiah 9-6 came to fruition. And so I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke 2, to a very familiar passage. In fact, it was the substance of which was part of some of our songs this morning. But this is the night in which Jesus was born. I'm going to work through it and read through it slowly. And I want you to consider what it is saying and even what it's not saying. And the first part is pretty straightforward. It's probably not widely misconceived unless in your imagination that there are three wise men that are sitting around in this picture. They come a few years later. But beginning our reading in verse 6 for the context. And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So we have the picture, we understand and, uh, that while they were away on census, the time of delivery, the time that had become full, as we're told elsewhere in Scripture, when the time was just right, Mary delivered a child into these very uncomfortable and, and humble circumstances. Now let's pick up again in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And people, the Greek word there is for common people. That's the word uh, in Greek, the laos, or leo in this particular case. And so it's not for um, the elite, it's for people who would be easily overlooked in almost any other circumstance, but God was conscious of even those who were most common. In verse 11, 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And this is the exact moment the angel is announcing that that which was promised in Isaiah 9-6 has actually come to fruition. For to you a, a, a child is born, a son has been given. And then there were some details as to that weren't in Isaiah's prophecy, but this is the announcement of the fruition of, of that prophecy. But here's where it's important that we, we hear what God says and what God doesn't say. So pick up with me again in verse 13. And suddenly there was an angel, uh, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Notice that the angel doesn't say, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Despite what the banner declares when you enter into Christmas town, and that which we all long for. That apparently wasn't what God had in mind, at least not at that time. So the angel didn't say, peace on earth. The angel had a much more narrow focus. On earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. Peace among those to whom God has shown his favor. The Greek word here means delight and pleasure and satisfied. And that's important for you to hear as well. Because this is a promise to those who believe, as we'll see here in a moment. And for everyone who believes, this is the attitude that God has toward you. He delights in you. We see a prophecy in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, in Zephaniah, when the people were feeling very alienated from God and then the, uh, the, they see the host from heaven coming and declaring, the Lord your God who is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. In fact, he's rejoicing over you with singing. A friend of mine introduced a song that uses those lyrics and somebody came up afterwards and confronted him about those heretical, touchy-feely kind of words and lingo, unfamiliar with the, the words in the scripture. Wondering why would God, you know, have this affection for me. and You know, God's going to sing over me. That's the reality. There's peace to those with whom God delights. And he delights to such an extent that while we're here lifting up our voices and praise over him, he sings over you that he loves. That he delights in, that he's pleased with, that he is satisfied in. Satisfaction means that there's nothing that is lacking. He, he's satisfied with you. 
And for those who are feeling the anxiety and the distance from God during this Christmas season or other times of their life, I hope you'll stop and think about that. that while what the angel and the hosts of heaven were declaring at this time is more limited than what we might be comfortable with, the particularity of it is very important to you and to think about the implications. Not only is there peace that is possible for you, but there's peace that is possible because of the way God feels about you. But it begs a natural question. Who are the people with whom God is pleased, with whom he is delighted, with whom he is satisfied? The short answer is it's everyone who believes. Romans 5.1 tells us this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, believing, which also includes repentance, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the implication. So anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, you are now at peace with God. We have been reconciled because we have been justified. And that's, that's the implication that the angel was announcing because it's the purpose for which Jesus has come. And we see that more fully if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We want to look at this passage and kind of explore it for a moment because it is key to our understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and how that peace can be experienced today and what the extent that peace will be. But Ephesians 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 13 again for, uh, for some of the context. But, well, I'll start actually a bit uh, before, uh, verse 12. Remember that you, uh, that you were at, at one time separated from Christ, alienated uh, from the, the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in this world. That's the condition that every one of us is born into. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now where we want to focus, the word peace in the next few verses is brought in three times. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God, one in one, in, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, who were far off, and peace to those of you who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What Paul is saying there is, look, we were born and alienated from God, and very few of us were born into a Jewish heritage, at least therefore being covered in a covenant relationship, being born into the people that God had established and covenanted with. And so therefore, we're the ones who are far off. Anyone who was not born into a Jewish family, near would have been anybody that was born into a Jewish family. But we all have the same problem, whether one is far away or one is near, because we're all born alienated from God because of our sin. And yet in Christ Jesus, we are reconciled to God, and he takes the two difference, the Gentile and the Jew, and he makes one body. 
How does he do this? By making peace. And how does he make peace? According to this, there are three things that we see that Jesus has done. First and foremost, and perhaps most significant, is he is our peace. In other words, it's not peace comes from him, but peace is found in him. And so it's vital that we recognize that only as we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, which comes through faith, living in with him, that is where we find that peace. That's how we experience that peace, because it's not just from him, but it's in him. He is our peace, and yet he who is our peace makes peace, because that means it's something that he has done, not us. And what he has done, because we're told he makes peace through the blood that was shed on the cross, is that he who was born that we celebrate was born to die. And that he went to the cross, and he laid his life down, and he was crucified. He was killed for our sin, and he was raised for our salvation. So he who is our peace made himself the sacrifice, and he made peace for us. And then we're told that then after his resurrection, and even during all of his ministry, is that he proclaims peace. Who is it that he's proclaiming peace to? People from every tribe and tongue and nation throughout the world. People that belong to him that are not yet of his fault. Now, it's the people whom God has favor, to whom he's brought peace. But Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, is taking peace to the nations, to the whole world. But it's vital that we understand as the people who are hungering and who are proclaiming the relationship with Christ, how is it that we experience that peace? Because it's one thing to declare peace, and yet many of us struggle with anxiety and fear or anything else that robs us of peace. How do we experience this peace? I think Isaiah actually gives us a, a wonderful template bullet points to remember because it begins by remembering that Jesus Christ is mighty God therefore he accomplishes whatever it is that he sets out to do there's nothing that he can't do because he's God and he's mighty God and we also are given peace when we remember that he is our everlasting father because that tells us the nature of the relationship we have with the one that is most powerful. It's one thing for somebody to be powerful and to be impressive and to make promises. It's another thing to know that they love you. And God has revealed through the prophecy that we have been looking at during this Advent season that he relates to those who believe in him as our father. It is to show his love, his affection, his promise of protection, his delivery, and to raise us up and to shape us. We find peace when we remember that he is a wonderful counselor, meaning that he has all wisdom. He has all knowledge. And so not only does he give us knowledge and tidbits so that we can pass a Bible trivia game, but he directs our steps by saying this is the way that life is supposed to work, and he has given us his law, and he has given us his instruction, and he has even given us his own example and saying when you live this way, life works much better than if you don't. It's not a promise that there will be no anxiety and no conflict with people in the world, but the reality is when we live according to the way God has told us to live, we minimize the reason for a lot of our anxiety 
we at least eliminate a lot of the problems that we bring on ourselves because of our own sin that then bring consequences because it's not the way that we're supposed to live. But Isaiah has given us this beautiful idea in just in these three things, and if those are the only three things that we were to focus on during these next few weeks or at times when we are feeling anxiety, we see how this is able to bring us peace because we realize that we are already in a right relationship with God, the mighty God, because he has made it so by sending one to be our peace, giving peace, by dying on the cross, shedding his blood, and he's done so because he loves us and he's never going to forsake us. And then he is giving us guidance on the way that we live, not intended to crimp our style or limit the way and the things that we do, but in order to direct our steps in a way of wisdom that leads to peace. And the reason that he does that is because we are the agents of his peace to the world in which we live. See, we we live in a world that is longing for peace. We live at a time that is marked with violence and terrorism and division. It's not unique to history, but it certainly is characteristic of our time and of our culture. And the reality is none of these things will be entirely eradicated until Jesus does come back and we do cling to the hope and the promise that he is coming back. But in the meantime, we recognize this is what the world is longing for. Longing for what the Old Testament scholars would call shalom or what the Jewish people would call shalom. Shalom, when we think of that, we tend to think of it just simply means peace, but it means far more than that. And I can't do better than a guy named Cornelius Plantinga in a book that he wrote called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Listen to how he describes what shalom is, this peace that our world is longing for. He says this, the prophets of the Bible kept dreaming of a time when God would put things right again. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would straighten out. The foolish would be made wise and the wise made humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would bloom, the mountains would run with wine, people would stop weeping and be able to sleep without a weapon under their pillow, people would work in peace and work to fruitful effect, a lamb could lie down with a wolf because the wolf had lost its appetite. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from women in the streets and from men at sea. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In English, we call it peace, but it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. So this is what the world is longing for, and this is what we are longing for, what we have a taste of, but we don't experience in full because we live in a broken world and we are still broken people. We have a taste of it if we are in Christ because he is our peace. He is our shalom who has made that peace for us, and he giving us peace is at work within us. Because the call to follow Jesus is a call 
to becoming agents of his peace, that we are to engage in mission and evangelism through proclamation, word, and through our deeds in order that the world that is longing for peace might be able to find that peace and that found that peace is found in Jesus. But we need to return, and we're going to finish up with this, to Jesus' own words. That I didn't come to bring peace. And ask yet again, what is it that he meant, and how does that apply to us? And to understand what he meant there, it's vitally important to ask ourselves, what was the context? What was he, what was he doing when he expressed these words? I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. He was commissioning his disciples to go out into the hostile world and to proclaim the peace of God that had come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so right there it seems a little incongruous except what Jesus understood that they may not have. And sometimes some of us don't understand is it just because we have Jesus and just because we have the promise of that peace and just because we go out with good intentions doesn't mean that our experience is going to be easy and that everybody is going to be happy to hear the name of Jesus. He was preparing them who were overwhelmed with the grace and experience in the presence of Jesus in that relationship, who may have gotten the idea, who wouldn't want this? I mean, this is the answer to what people are crying for. And then go out and find people shutting the door on them or turning off the conversation when they bring up the name of Jesus or any other kind of controversy and conflict that surrounded this person, Jesus, in the day. He was preparing them to recognize at this time in history, not everybody is going to receive it. And some are going to be very emphatic in their unwillingness to receive. And therefore, it's not going to feel like peace. You're going to have conflict still in this world. And Jesus says, it's not because it's not, I'm not powerful enough or that God is not at work. He's saying, this is what I am doing and this is how I am at work because not everybody will receive, but those who will, will find peace. I've come to bring a sword. In other words, we're going to carve out those who belong to God, those who belong to Jesus' fold. And through that carving out, those who belong will believe and in believing experience peace and then be enlisted to being vessels of extending that peace to their family, to their neighbors, to the nations, to anyone who will hear and to anyone who will receive, to anyone who will believe. See, we are called to engage in mission to proclaim peace through Jesus to a hostile world. And at times we're going to be rejected and at times we're going to be in conflict, even for faithfulness. And Jesus wanted us to be aware of that, that it's not just a consequence of our time, it's part of the plan. But even in the midst of that, we have an opportunity as he instructs his disciples, so far as it's up to you, live at peace with everyone that we can demonstrate the peace that we are experiencing, even though we're broken. To share the peace even with people who would hate us and hate Jesus because we are to love our enemies because while we were still enemies of God, he loved us and sent his son to die on our behalf. And so we see in these instructions that Jesus' love and to give you peace in the midst of unrest in the world that we live in. That you can still have peace knowing God is in control because this is exactly what he expected. This is what he's doing. 
that you don't need to have anxiety because there's conflict around you, but that you are able to have peace even in the midst of that anxiety. And this is the beauty of what Christmas is about. This is the gift that has been essentially the, the inauguration that will bloom later in time. So we can never separate Christmas from Easter. The purpose for which Christ has come is to lay his life down as a ransom for many. So therefore, that's the reason he is born. He's not born for us to ogle at his cuteness. He's born for us to be amazed at the wisdom and the plan, the power and the peace of God that will be made on the cross. And if we were to leave this day with any understanding, it would be this. We celebrate Christmas rightly once a year, but Easter is every day. And for that, we see the greatest gift that God would give to us in the Christmas season. It's a gift that continues to blossom, to bring peace, to bring hope. It's at work now as we believe. It's at work now as we see people coming to faith. It will one day be perfect, but that day is not today. May God grant you peace through this Christmas season as it points us to the day of the cross, knowing that God, who is our peace, is here with us. Father, we pray with thanksgiving that you have loved us and sent your son. We pray with thanksgiving that you have not left us to wonder what it is you were doing and how things are to work, but that you have revealed it. We come and confess that so often we are caught up with our own plans and misconceptions that we feel a lack of peace. But I pray, Lord, that you would be at work today in the hearts and the minds of all you've gathered here to be renewed in the promise as you have made it, that we would see our lives in line with the process, and that we may prosper in peace and fruitfulness for the sake of your name. Lord, we give thanks to you, for you are the Prince of Peace in our hearts, our lives, and ultimately throughout this world. And therefore we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.